Hello and welcome to the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. The Oregon Wine History Archive is located at Linfield University in McMinnville, Oregon, and is dedicated to preserving and sharing the Oregon wine story. This podcast shares these stories through oral history interviews we've conducted throughout the industry. Please enjoy today's episode. My name is Rich Schmidt. I'm here with Jared Hadi in North Plains. It's May 4th, 2021. Thank you so much for joining us today, Jared. Uh, first question, why wine? Well, wine came from, uh, came from my family. The, my first introduction was drinking it with my parents and with my dad, who's a, a wine collector. But when I jumped into making it, it came from somewhere completely different. Um, I got into it through poetry. It was the very end of, uh, of, of my bachelor's degree and I needed to get to a book release in Buenos Aires. It was the very first book that I was publishing of my own poetry and it was uh, being translated into Spanish. Um, something that at the time sounded really exciting uh, and very, very fruitful, but it, something like poetry doesn't pay at all. So I had to find a way to get down there. Um, I had met someone in Argentina um, who gave me the, the idea that it could, that could be possible. So I contacted him, he gave me some contacts and I found a way to get down to Mendoza and do a harvest. And that was, good, that was my entry. Um, and why I chose wine was because I started seeing these crossovers with all the things I really loved. Um, it had aspects of poetry. It had aspects of nature, of community, um, and a lot of uh, creativity and artistry. So through that first year, uh, I was lucky enough that they gave me a chance to make some of my own wine. And from there, it blossomed very, very quickly into, uh, well, almost uh, an addiction mm-hmm. of creating and wanting to learn more and wanting to travel uh, through wine. So we'll come back to all that. I want to back up for a second. You mentioned poetry as sort of the first thing. So tell me about poetry in your life and in getting to the point of actually having poetry published. Yeah, poetry was came to me when I was very, very young. I mean, it started with... Uh, love poems when you know when i was six or seven years old to my to little crushes that i had um and always trying to write small aphorisms to understand uh, the world at a at a young age um it wasn't until later that i started to collect them and write more and more um and at, at one point someone read them and he asked me if i could put together a a small manuscript for him because he wanted to take it with him. He took it with me uh, in about a year. He contacted me back and said, hey, uh, I found uh, someone who would like to publish these poems. Would you like that? Uh, And of course I would. It was something really, really exciting for me, especially because I was diving in more and more um, into the act of uh, reciting the poems and performing them because it's almost to some extent, there's the, there's the spoken word and there's what's written on a page. 
and both of them are potent. It's amazing hearing a poet recite in front of you, but it's amazing taking their poem and sitting at sitting with it and stewing with the with the words and the thoughts. So it came by by luck, came very naturally. It wasn't something that I pushed for. It was something that somebody introduced me into the whole idea of, of publishing the work. And from there, it took me to a lot of really, through a lot of really interesting experiences um, here in Portland. A couple residing at the different universities, um, residing at the um, Portland Art Museum. Um, but most of the events that I would do were outside of the country. Um, the International Book Fair in Buenos Aires, um, the Poetry Festival in Granada, Nicaragua, um, because the book was in Spanish as well. So it was nice I could get in touch with different communities and recite these poems in different languages. So that was kind of my path, and it's something that it follows me. I mean, there's not, um, there's not a month where there isn't something that crosses my head that I need to write down. Um, now it's a little more sparingly. I think I probably come across two poems that I write a month that I like, where if you talk to me, you know, 10 years ago, it was every day I was spending some time trying to chisel a, a piece, but it's still present. How did the, the, the translation piece come about? How did, how did, Ar how did it become Ar Argentina? How, how did that come about in the first place? Like, why, why there and why translate it? Um, well, I had um, a connection with an Argentine poet who had visited Lima, Peru. Um, I lived back and forth in Lima, Peru for about three years, helping translate books um, that were focused on agricultural technologies. It sounds uh, really modern, but agricultural technologies in growing potatoes in the Andes or uh, quinoa. And the translations were from Quechua, the um, native language of the Andes, to Spanish and Spanish to English. And um, I was taking care more of the English side. But through that, um, I met a, lo a, lot of, a lot of friends. And um, I didn't speak Spanish very well at that time. Um, I was good at translating it, but speaking it was different. So my way of communication came more through music. So I started playing in a, a musical group, and through that I met different poets, and that was when they asked for my manuscript, and that's how I jumped into it. It wasn't through visiting Argentina, it was through a visit of a, of a poet who was coming through to uh, visit the book fair in Lima. So that's kind of the story. An interesting path. You had a lot, of, a lot of interesting things. Tell me about some of the other sort of travels, either before wine or with wine. Where else have you been? What else have you done kind of before you got into wine as a more of a full-time thing? Um, well, I started traveling really early on in my life, and I think that's been, that's really marked me. Um, I've always felt more comfortable in transit than I have in a single place. Uh, by age I think maybe by five months, I was already living in, in a different country. Uh, we, I had a, a family member pass away, and we moved to France for half a year, living in, uh, living in Paris. Always had family in uh, 
spread throughout Europe and through the Middle East and was traveling a lot at a young age. So those trips um, are marking in my comfort in travel, um, but my memory kind of flies by because it was so young. Um, but then when I got a little older, a lot, a lot of time in uh, Spain, um, and then like I was telling you, I um, had a three-year on and off stint in, in Peru. Um, through that first vintage of wine, um, well, in a winery in, Ar in, in Argentina, um, I came across a, a family who wanted to do a col collaboration and we started making wine together. So I was going there every year for a few years and being able to work in a different hemisphere gives you the chance to appreciate your art twice. It's something that in wine is very difficult that you have one chance each year to uh, approach the harvest. So having two, especially towards the beginning when I spread my interest was really important and really, really helpful. Um, and taking information, taking uh, different practices from Argentina was, was in, an incredible experience because it's such a hodgepodge, beautiful culture. So that was, those were some of the, the important trips. And um, I guess I missed a whole portion of my life. Um, it didn't carry me for very many years, but I did a lot of, um, spent a lot of time in the mountains and um, pursued a career in snowboarding. And in that career, um, I went to, got to go, go to Japan, um, got to go to Lebanon, um, to Chile, um, all over the United States, uh, a lot of time in Canada. And so that was a lot of traveling too. So there's that aspect too. So these are a lot of, a lot of things. I've met a lot of different careers, a lot of different paths, but wine's always been in there somehow. Um, the first vintage of wine I made was when I was, uh, when I was 21. Um, so now I'm 33, so 12 years ago. It's my first one. Tell me about that first vintage. The first vintage was the most fun vintage. Um, it, my education came from a book that I got at Powell's Books. Um, <laughs> the grapes came from a, a small little backyard vineyard in North Portland. Um, that was back behind my house. It was after a, a freeze. A after that freeze, uh, I asked the neighbors if I could harvest the grapes and I made the wine in my basement. And so it was kind of the beginning was as a garage yeast winemaker. Um, Making it because I really like to drink it, and I thought, well, why not, why not make it? Um, that was the year where I actually flew to uh, Japan and went on that trip to Lebanon. So I didn't touch the wine. I left it, left it on the skins, came back, um, and I looked at it. It kind of looked a little moldy. I wasn't sure what was going on. Um, probably some of the ingredients. I mean, Nowadays, it's so much different because I won't, you know, never add anything to, to wine. But back then, from that little book from Powell's, I learned, okay, more sugar, more alcohol. I said, okay, well, definitely more alcohol. So here we go, brown sugar. Okay, more, more alcohol, you need more acidity. 
more acidity lemon, you know, lemon in there. And so that was the first vintage. And it's, it's so fun because thinking back to it, it's just amazing. So when we got back, we strained it and drank pretty much all that was left. And, you know, in a, in a night or, you know, one party. And that was the start to it, which is really fun comparatively to some of these other ones. Um, but in, in Argentina, it was the first time that I had a lot of thought process behind it, doing a, f a field blend of grapes and starting to work, you know, uh, with carbonic maceration, figuring out what it does. Uh, made a lot of wine. Um, the first one I made, we called it El Esclavo, the slave, because I f uh, the working conditions of that first vintage were very slave-like. Um, and those bottles were gifted to everyone in the neighborhood. Um, the where I got my haircut, the local bakery, the construction workers. I brought it to the poetry festival, which in which I was trying to get to. And that was the the start to a cycle of of traveling and wine studies, hand hands on wine studies. I'm curious about that, about, about learning wine that way. Tell me about the education, what, what, you, what you learned and, and what you thought was important to know as you were, as you were at that part in your life, and, and what do you learn as you've gone forward? That's a great question, because things really do change. I mean, when you start, you want to know, or I wanted to know, I wanted to know all the numbers. I wanted to know what were the tricks? What, um, what makes the best wine in the world? Um, and, and moving forward, I realized there is no best wine in the world. There's a great wine for a certain moment. Um, and there's so many different styles that could be suitable for a certain moment. And so many wonderful um, renditions of different grape cultivars and different blends and different regions. It's um, very objective art, and that's, that's the beauty of it. Um, so at the very beginning, I wanted to know all the tricks. I needed to learn how to work in the lab, um, what it meant, what all the tests were. I was taking notes all the time. Every winemaker just hated me by the end of the harvest because they'd ask so many questions. I could never stick with a job because they just wanted to get me out of there because I would slow down the process like no other. Um, just trying to learn and trying to figure things out. Um, but it was interesting because those takeaways, um, as far as that lab knowledge or working in some really prestigious wineries that I thought were the best wines because they um, garnered the highest prices, weren't the most important takeaways. Um, sometimes it was the very simple things like how to wash a barrel. Um, and having that sort of understanding of the some of the most basic work, how important it was, and it could give you a lot of flexibility um, in your process later on. So now looking back at it, it was, um, it's funny that I look at, all the, look at all those numbers because now I make all the wine um, primarily through intuition and check the, check the numbers, but there's never any recipe when I was looking for that recipe when I first started. So that's been a huge change. And also realizing that the variation of each, you know, each wine and each vintage is, is what's also special. Um, 
the manipulation that you see in um, in certain parts of the world and certain wine industries, it loses its magic very, very quickly because um, it's not honest. So what I what I was probably fighting to learn from the beginning and to where I am now is completely different. Nowhere nowhere similar. Were there people along the way that were especially influential on you as you were kind of coming to that conclusion, as you were getting to that point of, of sort of intuition? Were there people along the way who helped you with that? Oh, I'm trying to think of... Yeah, absolutely. Um, I was working actually in Napa Valley. Um, I was in, uh, in California and I jumped into um, a newer project uh, seemed perfect. It was a lot of uh, different winemakers using a similar facility. Um, and so they share ideas, share some equipment. I thought I would learn a lot. Um, I remember first day on the, pretty much first day on the job, the, the guy who was going to be my boss, he broke his collarbone. So I had to jump in and to take control of the, you know, take control of the seller. Um, and through that, I feel like I got uh, a lot more flexibility and was able to make my own wine there too. Every single vintage, even if I'm working somewhere else, I had to make my own wine. It didn't matter if it was in my house and I had to move out because it was fermenting, there's CO2 everywhere, I would fit, find a way to make it. And so this year they were kind enough to let me make it in the winery. And um, I was doing the class, you know, what I was seeking at the very beginning, looking at all the numbers and taking it to the lab and, you know, kind of nerding out about this wine. And I had a, um, a gentleman come in the winery and uh, when, I was, when I was starting and I said, you, know, you guys, do you want to taste this and tell me what you really, you know, what you really think? I'm making an, a, a Cabernet from Napa, and I, but I really want it to be... Uh, uh, I, I want it to let me recognize some of the things that I really liked in some wines in Bordeaux, which was a wine of less alcohol um, that was riding just the, the line of ripeness. And the guy said, oh, I totally understand. Those are the sort of wines that I like to make. Um, let me, you know, let me try it. And so we tried it and I said, well, you know, do you think it needs anything? Because I was in Napa Valley, which they're the kings of taking a, a, a wine and um, constructing, well, something very beautiful, but constructing it nonetheless. Um, a lot of wineries, a lot of people are very, very respectful, and those are the projects I, 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 I respect. Um, so this first winemaker, uh, it was, um, and soon after he was kind enough to uh, mentor me uh, through the process a little bit, and, in the creation of that first wine in Napa um, was Michael Salachi. Um, he's the winemaker at Opus One. Um, I didn't know what Opus One was when he told me, and um, it was pretty surprising because it was, it was pretty exciting once I figured out, oh wow, this is a, a great winery when he had me come through. I kind of laugh about the first time he invited me. He's, he's like, yeah, I have a perfect day. You should come and visit. We're going to have a tasting. Uh, we're going to have a tasting with the CIA. And I was like, 
oh my gosh, are you serious? I'm gonna hang out with the CIA, this is crazy. I'm like, hopefully they don't know about my past. And uh, I got there and it was a bunch of young kids and it was the Culinary Institute of America. I was pretty let down, but that was like, the first time I visited him. But that place was pretty serious. They have a very, very high attention to detail. But kind of looping back around is, his response of what I needed to do was off of intuition and of tasting, because he had done it so much. And, um, and that was it. There wasn't, there's not a recipe. It's a, it's a changing piece that's happening based on your taste. There's so many different aspects interacting. Um, there's the year, when you picked it, um, that, what sort of wine you're trying to make, um, listing a few. So that was one winemaker. Um, another winemaker that I would definitely mention who's been more recent um, what is Felipe Ramirez of, um, of Rosanero. Um, he also, it's all about the picks in the vineyard and about setting it up um, from the beginning to be a wonderful wine. And if you pick something right, there's no need for, for a correction. There's nothing, there's nothing to correct. Um, so that's been a big, that's definitely been a, a big focus is when it's ready and when you really believe in it to make a decision and to not look back and then the only thing you have um, and what you really have on your side is, is time with wine and letting it, letting it come of age when it does and not trying to push it through the process. Mm -hmm. So those are two to mention. You mentioned, you mentioned before we started, and again now, kind of the idea of patience and having to learn patience. So I'm curious about that. At the beginning, you were looking for the formula, right? Looking for the, the magic formula that will give you the perfect wine. Was there, the, 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 pro, the process of learning patience, were, were there moments for you that stand out in that? Or was it just sort of a gradual thing where you realized one day that you have to be patient with it and it'll, and it'll come? I think... It came a lot through tasting and realizing that some of the best wines I had ever had um, were a decade after they had been created and starting to think about making wines for the future, um, trying to have a year captured in a bottle that's also a time capsule that you could revisit. Stuff that happened when I would drink Barolos or wines from Bordeaux or uh, Burgundies. Um, but also even wines from, uh, from California. I mean, wonderful wines from the, from the 80s and the early 90s that are these living time capsules. Um, and the idea of patience in my own wine I had done so many things that had been kind of instant, had been having some good luck with all these different things I had been trying, um, but wine was something you, you pick it, that's your main tool is when, you know, when it tasted right and what your idea for the future is, but then you'd leave it for two years and the less you taste it, a lot of times the better it is and um, figuring out that you needed to wait and realizing that things were just getting better over time was 
a beautiful realization, and it's kind of played um, a big role in the wines that I've been making here in Oregon. Because in, in Oregon, there's a lot of anecdotes of what a good Pinot Noir is and how long you have to age it in barrel and what sort of barrel it's going to be and is it even going to be barrel or what, you know, what Chardonnay, it's got to be like this and it's got to be like that. Well, there are no recipes and so if you do have patience and if you're not on a timeline, if you don't have a schedule that needs to be met, I think that's when you can create something really special. Um, I have endless examples of this and, and different wines I've been working with. And Sometimes people are going to listen to this interview and say, oh my gosh, you just didn't have to, you know, you didn't have to pay the bills or, no, I had to pay the bills. I just have to pay the bills in a different way. And I wanted to be able to take these wines and think about them and be very, very thoughtful and have a lot of intention behind them and not try to jump through and push them. If I need to age a wine five years, I will. And, um, that's a project. I have wine still in um, Argentina that I visit. It's been in barrel for five years. Um, wine's here in the Willamette Valley. It's been in barrel uh, since 2018, so since I moved here. And it's there and it'll still be there for another year. Um, the idea of bottle aging, realization from it was uh, I worked in, in Poyak and uh, I was on a kind of, I was trying to pretty much my idea with exercise is like exercise enough that I can keep on drinking and <laughs> eating like I like I like to um, and so in in France there was a lot of eating a lot of drinking so I joined a team that was training for marathons in Poyak and one of uh, the colleagues in the group was um, uh, working at Chateau Le Tour and so I went and visited them and uh, their whole process was amazing. Their timing and realizing that they had these incre incredible wines, these incredible time capsules, but they needed to age them for six years in bottle before releasing them. Um, and I remember trying the wines and I stand behind it. They were beautiful, beautiful wines. And I'm so happy that they make even the consumers on that end to be patient. Taking a bottle of 2019 from Oregon, which is a beautiful vintage, but an incredibly difficult vintage. And drinking it right now is a mistake. Um, a lot of people don't have patience in their cellars, or maybe they don't have the room to do it. So I really hope that some wineries will hold it back and give people a chance to try really what those wines were meant for. Um, I mean, 2019, I think, is going to be amazing, and 2025 to open that up and give it a try. So there's kind of some examples, mm -hmm. at least. Mm -hmm. So at some point you decided to, do, to formalize your wine education a bit. So, so tell me about that decision and about why you chose the way you, you did choose. Um, yeah, I think it was important to put together all the pieces. I had a lot of interest in viticulture. I knew that was where the materia prima was, where I needed to visit. I understood a lot of the science and I was trying a lot of wines, so I had a good exposure to wines. Um, but there were still some missing aspects. And also the market and what different regions were doing. Even though I had the chance to work a lot in South America and the West Coast, the idea of what was going on in Europe and 
what were in some of their traditional techniques were very, very interesting. So I chose to study, in my eyes, one of, which is one of the most foundational pieces of, 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 of scientific knowledge that goes into wine is from Bordeaux. Um, so I did my studies in Bordeaux and found a, a program, a master's degree there that had a huge focus on viticulture, also analogy, but looped in some of the other aspects, some of the, some of the wine business, um, because they all need to work together. They all need to play a part in having people actually have a chance to try the wines. You can make wonderful wines, but to even get them into the hands of the people who'd really enjoy them, it's all a very important aspect of it. Um, so I did that program. Um, very, very interesting. Um, it brought up a lot of opportunities to meet some very, very classic um, uh, scholars and consultants um, in the wine industry, and that also helped develop uh, an aspect of what I'm doing now. Um, so I hope that answers well, but the, yeah, spent years there, which was very, very helpful. And the language too, learning that sometimes I can't translate some of the stuff in the, even in the vineyard, most of the vocabulary I have is in French in the vineyard. Um, and same in the cellar, mm -hmm. which is interesting. Were there particular takeaways for you as you were looking at kind of what the next step for you would be? Were there takeaways from that educational process or from earlier as you were kind of honing in on what you wanted to do with the career part of, for a while? I mean, as you're thinking of like what you're doing now, where did the ideas come from? Well, I think before I even jumped into um, studies uh, or form formal education, I knew that I wanted to create my own project. It's something that allows a lot of creativity. How I was going to get there, I wasn't sure. I knew I was always going to be creating some wine on the side, but how I was going to be able to get there to create my own project, I wasn't, wasn't sure. So I let a lot of the work that I would find happen quite naturally. Uh, through word of mouth um, and not try to push myself too hard into a space because I didn't want to get uh, ahead of myself. I knew that I had a lot to share, but I needed people to be ready to receive that sort of information to find people to work with and to do different things. So through that program, working with, it was um, with Eric Boissonneau, who um, creates a lot of the wines in, in Poyac, uh, Chateau uh, Margot, Lafitte, Rothschild, Mouton, um, Chateau Le Tour, Pichon Comtesse, Pichon Baron, I think as well, um, a few of them. So all the, all centralized, his take on it and his job, I thought sounded amazing. Then there was, uh, um, Pascal Chatonnet, who does Vega Cecilia, who does Beaucastel, um, who is a friend, who is my friend's uh, father. Seeing his work, um, working with uh, other people like Paul Hobbs, 
seen uh, some of the viticultural consultants as well that were working in France and seeing their job, I thought that could be really interesting, a really good way to learn a lot about different areas to um, help people in different aspects and to have a chance to blend with people, to plant vineyards, um, to fix problems. And I always thought that was kind of, it's fun. And I love the problem solving aspect um, of winemaking and of grape growing, but also of consulting. Mm -hmm. it's, so I think it was through meeting some of those uh, other friends or mentors or professors that I realized it could be a good job. But I thought it was going to be something I would fall into maybe when I was older. Mm -hmm. uh, absolutely. So you've been all these places, you've seen all these different wine regions. What made you decide to come here and, and what, were your, what, were, what were your impressions of Oregon wine at the time? Um, well, my, prof my impressions before I left were that it was, um, that was really beautiful, that it was perfumed and sexy and a really, a, a, a real dynamic market too because there was different kind of grape cultivars that were popping up and were becoming interesting and um, also it was one of the few places that you could be in a different part of the world and they actually knew where Oregon was. Well, maybe they didn't know where it was, but they had heard of the Willamette Valley. And that's a lot to say. I can travel around the United States and people in the United States have no idea where Oregon is. They have no idea. But you go all the way across the world and somebody knows where the Willamette Valley is because they put a real mark on the wine industry. I thought that was really interesting. Um, but a big reason for coming back was I was born here. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm from Oregon and Naturally, I thought it'd be very interesting to come back here with the different areas that I had worked um, and the different ideas that I had in my head and see what I could do here. I had came to this um, particular region that I'm living in now, which is, um, I'm in North Plains in um, the most northern part of the Willamette Valley, and helped um, a neighbor establish a Chardonnay vineyard. And it always seemed very special to me, but I didn't know why. But then once I started getting into climate studies, which was a huge aspect of what I had done in school, through different jobs afterwards, and currently, I realized that with the changing climate, this was the perfect spot to be, to be up north, to be in a high elevation area, somewhere with strong catabatic winds. Um, and when I started looking at the soil type too, it became even more interesting. I realized how distinctive the wines would be and how different mm -hmm. um, they would come out. And it's a small little area too, everything north of, um, of Highway 26, the one that takes you out to the coast. It's very small, unexplored, um, and people weren't making single vineyard wines from here as well. So it seemed exciting. Um, so we flew back. Um, because of this property where I live now to see what it was like. I took a look at it. I said, I don't know. I wasn't sure about it. I said, I don't know. I don't think so. I had an offer to do uh, um, a vineyard development, do some winemaking. I was kind of working out it was going to be in, uh, in England and um, in an area called Kent, which is developing for sparkling wine. And I thought, wow, now how cool is that going to be? I can stay in Europe, 
kind of a dream to growing up here. I was like, I'm going to stay in Europe. But I had a um, girlfriend at the time. And she said, come on, let's do it. Let's try it. Come on. You're going to always regret not going back and going back. Your dad lives there. Your family's there. Let's give it a try. And uh, so happy we did because we fell into an area that's just amazing. It took a it took her absolutely to, to kind of push me to take the leap and take the risk too to start um, my own project because I was very comfortable in the idea of at least working for other people for a while. Um, and so this little area I'm completely committed to. Um, I've stopped a lot of the other jobs that I was doing and um, ideas that I had because I realized how much work there was to do, not only in my backyard and the farm I live in, but in my neighborhood. So let's talk about that part first. Let's talk about the, the neighborhood first. You, you mentioned you, 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 farm, you farm the grapes out here. If there's grapes on this road, you're farming them. So tell me about that process for you of, of, of finding those relationships and starting to, grow, starting to work on those grapes and, and what the kind of reaction has been of, the, of your neighborhood. Yeah, it was, like I had said before, I never really want to push anything. I want to see it fall into place naturally. Um, a neighbor um, up the hill from me asked me to uh, consult for the first year when I uh, moved in uh, to, we wanted to begin farming her uh, vineyard organically, uh, find out a good um, kind of balance in, in the vineyard. And th as far as the, the canopy and the crop load and, and all of that. And we went down to another uh, vineyard who's, who's, not, who's still a, a client of mine. And we started talking about our vineyard and, you know, just to see maybe if we could share some equipment or some, you know, uh, share some of the crew that would be helping us with the hand labor. And she right away said, you know, I think I really would want you to consult for me too. What do you think? I said, well, yeah, sure. And so then from that first year, I already had two clients. And that was, I don't need a lot. I'm somebody who could really live off probably $400 a month. I mean, like I said, I kind of have, a, yeah, I really want to eat good, good places and I love drinking good wine, but a lot of times I can trade it. Um, <laughs> but when I had those two clients, I said, okay, well, maybe this is what I'm going to be doing. I kind of pulled back from the idea of finding a, a traditional job as a winemaker at one of the, um, one of the wineries in the Willamette. Um, I had a, cause I had a couple interviews set and I just said, well, maybe I can just pull this off. Um, and then it just kept on going. Um, then, so yeah, now it's pr pretty much the entire hill working its way all the way to skyline and now even passing skyline. Um, and we're, starting to work in Scapoose um, and trying to develop vineyards in areas that people have never planted before. Mm -hmm. um, so now it's to the, you know, now there's a lot more acreage and I'm working a little bit down south, especially more with uh, wineries. So it's creating relationships uh, with people that I can really trust in the vineyard and setting up different sort of uh, working protocols and w you know working on trying to get everybody on the same page. Um, 
working towards farming all the sites uh, organically and, um, and beyond that, organic and biodynamic, um, something I never really liked. Um, I'm, if you are, if you're not, I, I'm not. I don't have a certain credence. I don't um, live by uh, certain rules. Uh, it's, ve it's very flexible. And I think that in the vineyard as well, I think there's great decisions to be made. Almost all of them are organic products, and a lot of them are biodynamic techniques. Um, but that flexibility, I think you are going to have so much more room to develop your own ideologies in a vineyard and to let every year tell you what it needs, not to be um, um, kind of closed in by uh, certain rules and certain timings. Mm -hmm never having a spray program that tells you when to do it exactly on this point of the lunar cycle, but to do it based on weather and to not do it based on weather. Um, so that's some of the principles we farm with here. But so that's now I would say the areas that I'm working with encompass uh, from the coastal mountain range on 26 uh, past banks to Helvetia. And so just in this, uh, in this area, um, We've been working, and, and the reaction has been really well so far, especially on the side of, of, of winemakers who work with the fruit. Um, they're really excited. They want to plant more acreage. Um, everybody realizes that this is a, a wonderful, wonderful uh, location that's been almost forgotten about, mm -hmm. and that looking towards the future, it's somewhere that we need to plant more vineyards because it naturally retains acidity. It has... Uh, amazing texture from the winds that come through from the Columbia Gorge and the soil types unique that creates um, I would say a, a certain wine that has a, a bit of uh, rusticity and that is wonderful you have a lot of content to work with and what you want to do that's de uh, dependent on the, the winemaker the, the artist behind it but at least you have a lot of content and material to start off with. Mm -hmm. So people have been really enjoying the sites and um, and just the, it's the subtle changes. Wine's a subtle, it's, it's a subtle piece. I mean, you don't need to do, anyth do anything big to, to change the system. It's the little things. It's the little things that you pick out in a Pinot Noir and a Chardonnay that make it special. It's not the huge, powerful punch of something that you added to it. Mm -hmm. There's no tricks. Um. So one of the things you, you mentioned when you were showing us around was the, the notion that you're kind of on the edge here right now and from, from sort of climate-wise. And so uh, tell me about that notion of knowing going into each season that you might not get what you think you're going to get or, or convincing the people you're, who are hiring you of that, that, that idea that they can't just roll out and say they're going to get a certain number of grapes or a certain number of, of tons. So. Uh, how do you kind of come to terms with that, and how do you make us everybody else come to terms with that as well? Well, it's a difficult one. It's why uh, growing grapes is such a, sounds sappy, but it's such an emotional job. I mean, you're, you start the year and it could be the most beautiful year ever, like 2020. It could be the most beautiful year. You're looking at something amazing, and then because of some catastrophe or some change in climate or you know just 
or because of just the change in that season, because of rain, um, you have to pick right away or the grapes start to rot. And if you're farming in maize, what is ethically, which is um, not, you know, spraying it at times where those sort of chemicals could get into the wine, like, con like conventional farmers, um, yeah, there's a chance you're gonna lose it. Um, but with any um, act, with big risks, there's big rewards. Um, when everything does come together and you're on the edge of where things ripen, you also will have the most varietal expression. And that's something very important to me. Wines, not with high alcohol, but with a high amount of phenolics and content and character and personality. So when it is good, like I said, it's great. And the realization that you might not get it, it's difficult, but it's part of the, it's part of the job. Um, and there's also, there's always the chance, and sometimes people don't realize this on, um, on the consumer side, there's many different wine styles that we can make from a single grape. Um, that's not how you should plant the vineyard, but it's the reality of what you can do with the fruit. So if it's not, um, a, if it's a very, very difficult year, maybe we'll be focusing a little bit more on lighter wines for the summer, or we'll be focusing on sparkling wines or rosés in very high elevation vineyards. But when we have all the, um, when we have everything in the year come together, then of course we want to make a still wine that we think has the potential for aging, well, half a century or a century or something that can be uh, a timepiece that people can hold on to. Let's talk about your project here specifically, um, with the vineyard and, and with the, the wine studio that we're in now. Tell me about the, let's talk about the vineyard first. And um, you kind of showed us around and showed us sort of the way you're planting it. Tell me, tell me about the decision to what to plant and, and how to plant it. And, and also how to, how to cultivate it. How, how, how to, of all the different kinds of farming you've seen, why did you choose to do it the way you've done it? Well, it's kind of interesting. Sometimes I came in here with certain ideas and you very quickly learn that you need to change them. Um, so I can't say that I came in here with these same intentions of growing radishes and carrots and, you know, mustard and uh, all these different things in the vineyard. But the soil was telling me to do that. Um, it needed that. It was, sometimes it was uh, soppy in certain times of spring where I needed to do some work. So I needed to get to absorb the water and I needed to find a solution for that. Um, I, when you live, there's a different connection between a vineyard if you, uh, if you live there and you're there every day or if it's out in the middle of nowhere and you never go there. And I think that that disconnect is sometimes where we lose a lot of personality in vineyards. Um, this isn't just somewhere that produces grapes that are going to some factory somewhere. It's a vineyard that is going to produce a wine that was planted for a singular wine. And it's also somewhere I live in that I interact with. Biosis between 
these sort of flowers, the neighbors being able to run their bees, the animals being able to get in there, for us to be able to get in there and enjoy and to be able to enjoy the cover crops that we're doing. Um, it's got to have a, a, a nice, it's got to have a nice symbiosis. You have to also enjoy where you are. Um, there's an important aspect of the design of the soil type, of the due diligence of a site, but there's a really important aspect of um, of also having good energy when you're out there because you're going to put more love into the product. Um, I'm not talking about an energy, you, you know, some, some energy you can't grab. I'm talking about something that's very, very tangible. Um, if you have energy and love for something, you're going to take time. And, and, um, and love is time. And so when we were talking about uh, kind of the technique of, of growing roses at the end, um, a lot of people grow them because if their roses are going bad, it means their vineyard's going bad. Well, for me, it's the idea that every time I'm getting in there and walking, there's a, a rose that, you know, my wife has propagated that I go and I get a smell that has some sort of story of maybe somewhere we were. Um, I'm paying attention to that rose. It's getting me out there more. It's getting me to go in every single row more times. It's an entrance to something I enjoy. Um, and at the same aspect, like I told you before, it's hard to take care of roses. Um, so if you can take care of those, then you're also take care and hopefully taking care of your vineyard like a garden. And that's, that's something that's important too, is when you're looking at something and the size of it, can you farm it like a garden? Um, can you start thinking about this like a, like a garden instead of a, a commercial operation? And what about when it comes to choosing what, what kind of grapes to plant for yourself? If they're going into wines you want to make, how do you decide what grapes to plant and, and, and in what quantities and in what, and in what areas? Yes, yeah, so it's something that doesn't happen quick um, because there's a lot of aspects that we'll take. We'll um, do the, or me personally, I'm doing them, but the climate studies, um, and the, the soil pits, I mean, the amount of soil pits that we dug and hopped in and seen what's going on underneath, that's the story that um, is going to be transmitted through the, through the vines. So that sort of mapping and figuring out really what you have underneath, what you have above, which is, you know, the sky and the rain and this, this, the solar degree days and things like that, um, the aspect, the cold pockets. Um, all those sort of things, that's going to help in the vineyard development and also help me in the ideas of what I can and what I can't plant and obviously elevation. We're at a high, high elevation here. Um, so when I was going into this place, um, a lot of, all actually, every piece that I've planted, um, it's based on a blend that I will, uh, that I'll blend prior to uh, planting the vineyard and it creates a singular wine. It could be three different types of grapes. It could be five, it could be two. Um, depends on uh, what I'm looking for. And I do it in a small, um, on a small scale. Mm -hmm. And then that being able to be replicable on, I would say double the size. Um, so it gives me the chance to fine tune that blend a little bit because everywhere you're gonna plant, you're gonna learn things throughout the year. Um, you're kind of asking me about how I chose it, a lot of it's from observation throughout the year. So it wasn't something we could plant the whole property in one go because 
for me, there's 10 different vineyards in the backyard. Mm. Um, there's different soil types, different aspects, different areas, different little springs, different things going on. So the only way to understand those is to live here, to walk around, put your feet down, see, you know, see when things are happening, when they're blooming, where the frost is, where the snow melts, mm. all of that. So tell me about the decision to, 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 to build this space or in the, the wine studio and what, what your kind of idea is for it. Yeah, this is really exciting, the movement to start creating more wines um, right here in, in the vineyard. Um, so the idea with this space was to have an area that I could really experiment. Um, and I think scale is really important. So on a scale where it's representative, um, that's manageable, and then one that I think I can create enough in the future to be able to share with the uh, markets that I like to work with. Um, so in here we have all the different experiments going on. And if I find that I like how they turn out, then I'll take them to another winery space. Maybe it's one that I'm consulting at, or maybe it's one I rent a small por uh, portion of or set up an agreement with them so I can make a little larger of a scale. And slowly, as, um, as the vines come of age for the new project and as the space comes of age, and me as well as a winemaker in this area, We'll grow the building and we'll grow the project, but all with time and patience. Mm -hmm. I think we managed to get to this point by talking about the project without ever actually naming it. So, so Grape Inc. Tell me about the, 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 the why the name and, and what the kind of your philosophy behind uh, going forward is. Yeah, that was. We had a um, pretty kind of strategic process going into the whole thing. Um, I had helped some people with uh, branding different wine releases and creating new um, new labels and new tiers and things like that. So we wrote down everything that we believed in that we felt was an identity of not just the project but of the life that we live and that we stand by. Um, which it's not a singular focus. It, it's got to add to each other. I mean, without, uh, without some of the art, there wouldn't be wine. And so we needed to find something that blended the two together. Um, so grape ink and I-N-K, like the ink that we, we write with, um, wanna, of course, it's closely related to, I, I mean, I've fa found wine through, uh, through writing. Um, but the real reason is because grapes are the, they're the material, they're the paints, they're the ingredients to a wine, they're the most important aspect of it. Um, and then you paint a picture with what, what you have each year. And it was nice for, we needed to figure out a couple ways to keep ourselves stimu stimulated. So we have one side of the project which is, starts with art which um, come about through different canvases that are painted. Um, I take the inspiration through the canvases and I create a wine based on uh, my wife's art. 
that transmit me the same sort of emotions that her piece does. And it's, uh, it's a wonderful challenge because it's one of those uh, constraints that makes you create a different product than you would have, would have done. So there's that aspect. And then there's another aspect, I don't know in the video, but there's some other bottles where it's just simplicity and transparency and it's just about this neighborhood and the site. Um, there's the artistic element to keep us interested and to have a, a really fun time sharing some of uh, these new wines and wine styles that we're coming up with in the studio. Um, but then there's the aspect that really pays tribute to how much I do believe in the soils up here and the um, nature of and um, the geographical location of two of just where we kind of are on the map. So that's how the name came about. Um, the kind of where art meets wine. Hmm. And how do you see it evolving? Well, I think in the future, as um, a lot of the sites that I work with right now are older vineyards that maybe I've uh, kind of revived or that I've consulted with a little bit um, or that I've, you know, farm entirely, I think it's going to be moving even closer to the house because um, as there's more winemakers interested in this area, some of these sites I look forward to sharing with other faces. And um, there's these new varietals that will be popping up in the backyard and that I'll be able to carry right into the winery by hand. Um, so it will just be moving it closer and closer um, in. So that will be, I think, kind of the, the future um, for us. And keeping a real strong focus on making wines that have a lot of a lot of personality of not only uh, of a type of grape. I think that that's a direction I'm not so interested in, but in a in a in an actual farm, um, in an actual parcel, and it's the whole idea of of wine growing. Which I don't know if we mentioned that aspect yet in the interview, um, but the idea of growing wine. Not growing grapes. Um, growing grapes is if you're going to sell them. Um, I think growing wine is if you're going to make it uh, for yourself. And it's a completely different, uh, different job and different aspect, especially a completely different way of develop developing a vineyard. Uh, you mentioned one of the things that you, you got from sort of ed education part in your life was the, the, the idea of marketing and, and taking your wine and, and selling it. So tell me about, now that you have this project, tell me about finding the space for it and finding consumers for it and what you kind of hope as, you, as it grows, what do you hope the consumer is going to look like? Is it going to, how are you going to sell your wine? The exact same way that the project came about. Um, it's something that we open our arms to it unfolding uh, naturally and to let it happen organically. And that's what's been happening. Uh, people come, 
they maybe take a visit to the farm and want to be involved. If it's to help out in some of the farming or if it's to help out in trying to talk about the wines in whatever city they live in. Um, I don't like to go out and sell the wines very often because I know there's a, a thousand people out there trying to push the wines. So I really um, enjoy when people hear about them and they come to us and that's been working very well. Um, we every year it seems like it's the the wines we want to we want to sell throughout the year for us to drink. Usually sell it like, you know about a month, and that's probably we need to do more. But I mean, we're it's nice. We we'll find these partners who happen naturally when we talk about distribution. Um, you know, we, I had a distributor. Uh, a lot of times it's sending, you know, sending people hundreds of samples and doing lots of things. Um, my favorite distributor to work with, he came here to visit us. Uh, he sat down with me and he tried the wines and he and I asked him, I said, well, you know, what do you think the wines are worth to you? And that's what he sells them for. And I think that aspect is beautiful because everybody has a share in what's going on. Um, and everybody can donate their expertise. My expertise is definitely not selling wine or marketing wine. Uh, it's, you know, grow, growing. Mm -hmm. um, so just finding those sort of um, partners who are interested and um, being open to them and uh, not rushing things too quick. I noticed that I think sometimes when you take a sample and you send it across the world, um, not the same as being able to sit across the table with somebody or walking them through the farm and explain what's going on, not only what's going on, but why you're doing it. Mm -hmm. um, a lot of people sometimes couldn't answer that question. And um, here's my cynical side in the interview. A lot of times I uh, work with people and I ask them, you know, what they, you know, why they have a vineyard, and they can't, they can't answer me at all because it's because it's pretty. Uh, and when the winery and the vineyard becomes a vanity project, it's when we lose uh, character and personality in one. And it's something that I really want to fight for a lot is to respect those producers who are out there um, risk to jump in and uh, hop on a tractor and farm their grapes and start their little projects. Um, young producers or even older producers who have the passion for what's going on um, and who are consistently asking not other people questions but asking their vineyard questions, asking their self questions and trying to uh, push forward and learn. Um, not just have a vineyard because I'm a dentist or because I you know, made money as a lawyer and I don't know what to do and I've got to you know, have the, have the uh, esteemed prestige project. Um, sure, it's something that I'll help people out with that and I'll, I'll help people in vineyards like that and gives me a chance to interface with people that usually I don't have a chance to. I get to learn stuff about law and medicine and dentistry and all sorts of technology. Of course, technology, tons of technology lately, um, but it's not the same. It's not the same as going to a project and hearing about somebody who is in it because they love wine. And they're not only, you know, making it, they're drinking it every day, they're sharing it every day. It's a different, it's kind of a different process. So there's my, 
There's my little cynicism. <laughs> I gotta try to stay out of it a little bit, but it's got it's gotta be said. Well, on that note, you, you mentioned kind of your first impressions of, of Oregon wine. Tell me about the, the industry in general and, and what, it, what it looks like now in terms of who is making wine here, what is the wine like, and, and, and what do you see for the future of Oregon wine? Well, I think there's such potential and such a, such a future for Oregon wine because Oregon has been really good about telling one story. Uh, been good at telling the story of Pinot Noir and maybe one style of it. Um, but the, the huge problem that I see in the, the Willamette Valley is people are set in their ways. They're living off of anecdotes. They're doing what they're doing because their neighbors are doing it or because the market asked them of it. Uh, they're not critically asking questions of maybe what could be interesting to plant or where it could be interesting to plant or the why. Um, so I think the future holds a lot for, for where it could go, you know, where there's going to be two ways. There's uh, big groups coming in and buying, uh, buying wineries um, and that's taking away the f kind of small family aspect. Um, so, so I think it's going to, for the people who really care and are diving into Oregon wine, I think they're going to be searching out the uh, smaller producers and looking for a little bit of transparency of really what's going on. Um, what is this live certified wine? Cynicism. It's not that much. Um, it's not, it's really, it's really not that much. I mean, you still, you know, spray, uh, spray glyphosate, you know, Roundup on the ground and, uh, and, you know, probably don't have, don't have the same care you do for your workers because maybe you're not doing it because it's such a big winery. Um, so I think there's a lot of movements. There's things that need to be surfaced. Um, but there's so, there's so much to be planted. There's so many areas. There's so much uh, opportunity. Um, the Willamette Valley is huge. It has so many stories to play. It's as big as, uh, as some countries. So in this small area, the amount of grapes that we could plant and be successful with are incredible. The amount of soil types we have, sedimentary, volcanic, windblown mineral soils, um, and the mix of all those and different soil depths, rocks or no rocks, what type of rocks, all these different, all these sort of different aspects. Once they're thought, you know, once people discover them and they're thoughtful about these new vineyard plantations, the sky's the limit of the different sort of wines we can create. And I think it will push a little bit away. People are realizing the, um, and, and appreciating um, the potential of, of Chardonnay um, over the last five years. And it's incredible. I mean, it's incredible the quality we can get out of Chardonnay, but will people um, choose to plant it in areas that are going to be expressive, or will they still leave it on the flatlands, or will they still just plant it, you know, in the corner because they can't sell it for as much as Pinot Noir to people? It's starting to change. It's usually um, it's usually the dollar that's telling somebody here in the Oregon wine industry. Um, and I think once people can um, kind of move a little bit away and think about and be a little bit patient, think about the future, not think about the trends, um, I think we've, 
we got a lot of work to do and we got a lot of exciting stuff that's going to happen. Um, because we have that side of the organ wine industry. We have a lot of trends. We have a lot of, um, you know, we're going to make this wine because it's, it's hot. We're going to make Gamay. We're going to do this. Not, you know, not that there's not going to be, there's going to be wonderful places to plant Gamay and to make it and some of these other varieties that we can throw in the mix. Um, but not just grafting over a vineyard and doing it because it's going to be a profitable model. Being thoughtful about where you're planting it because it, th there's a why behind it. Because this soil, this soil type will help out, you know, or because it's in a warmer area. A lot of people are planting some of these varieties not realizing where they do well. Um, so in this experimentation phase of Oregon, which I think has just blossomed mm -hmm. and is very exciting, um, there's so much potential. There's so much potential. All this experimentation is going to come with knowledge to make good decisions in vineyard developments and also in winery developments and size and scale and when things need to be picked. And um, I see a movement probably away from only Pinot Noir. So how does Oregon as a region then compared to the other places you've, you've worked and, and, and experienced in uh, it's very, very young. Um, somebody who says they have a lot of experience, I mean, that experience could be, you know, five years or doing, doing it where it's not multi-generational. Multi and if it is multi-generational, sometimes you have to ask what sort of multi-generational work was happening, too, um, with, with some wineries. Um, so I think it's very young. I think that there's a lot to learn. Um, comparatively to, to other areas too, um, I think that Oregon has, um, it's interesting, it seems like people feel like they have a very good understanding of how to make wine, but are still kind of asking questions about how to grow grapes which I hope it would have been the other way around, because if you don't know how to grow grapes, then you actually don't know how to make wine. Um, but it's kind of happening in a, a, an interesting path where I think a lot of times, you know, you'll, you'll see projects and they have a, you know, very, very strong idea of what is gonna make, when we were talking about this before, the best Oregon Pinot Noir. And like I said, there's no best wine. There's no best Oregon Pinot Noir. There's really well adapted techniques and cultivars for different areas and different soils and different parts of the Lambert Valley. And areas that, you know, sometimes people look at and they say, oh, this isn't very good for Pinot Noir. Well, maybe it really is, but maybe it's just a different style. Mm -hmm. um, so I think that that hasn't been discovered as much in Oregon when I look at different areas. I think that people realize in, uh, like, like, let's say in France, that there's different places where you can still make really interesting wines, it's just a little bit different. Um, you think of uh, an area which is definitely, let's say, as small as the Willamette Valley. We'll talk about a classic, Bordeaux. You have uh, Bordeaux, you have these, you know, really, uh, st you know, structured Cabernets on one side, you got Merlot on one side, and then over here, because you have a different, you have a river going through it and the grapes rot, they have Sauterne, and they're making a rot wine, making a sweet wine, because they figured out that that area is well adapted for mm -hmm. that cultivar. 
not everybody's pushing to just grow the same thing because it garners the highest price. Um, because here in the Willamette Valley, the amount I see planted to Pinot Noir and the amount of sites that I think would produce interesting Pinot Noir, well, that's really small. And so it makes it very difficult because when you're at a winery trying to do these blends and you need to, you know, blend, let's say 50% of their wine into a, a good, you know, high tier wine, it becomes hard when a lot of these sites maybe should have been planted to, to something else. So there's kind of a kind of a, a little bit of a difference, and I think um, I would love to talk about scale a little bit because there's areas um, where, like let's like in in Italy and in Portugal, and some of these projects that I love, the scale is just beautiful, and in France as well, the scale, the scale in Burgundy, uh, the scale of having or in Champagne, of having a hectare or having 0.5 hectares, and that's your livelihood, and that's your work. It's very manageable. Um, here in the Willamette Valley, it's uh, pretty rare to talk to a producer who's working, um, you know, that would be a, like, I think, I think it's like two, you know, two and a half acres a hectare, you know, so who's working two and a half acres? Everybody's got 25 acres. They've got, you know, or they've got the backyard vineyard, 15 acres, 17 acres. I don't even know if they even get through walking each one. You've got to have a lot of help to do something like that. Um, so I think the scale here in Oregon, although we talk about these really small um, vineyards, I think sometimes on the production scale, a lot of the wines that we hear about that you say small producers and things like that, you're talking about, you know, 30,000 cases times that times 12, you know, it's a lot of wine. That's, 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 a, that's a lot of bottles of wine um, to think about taking care of. You need a whole team. Um, it's a different thing. Not saying those projects don't exist all over the world. It's just that I do see a change um, here. I see a lot of projects popping up in Hood River. Um, and even around here, I talk to people who are really interested in some of these smaller sites and thinking about getting their hands dirty from uh, bud break till uh, those wines are put to rest in the cellar in, uh, in December. So it's kind of a big, a big difference. I see um, rustic and modern too. I mean, here we have been pushing a lot for modern winemaking. And I grew up in Oregon. It's not really a modern place. Doesn't really go with, doesn't go with the personality of the place nor of the soil. Um, so I think it's something that we'll see a lot more of um, are more rustic techniques. Um, why I talk about the soil is I talk about volcanic soil, something that, has, that creates rustic style Pinot Noirs. Um, yeah, maybe we're gonna be seeing a lot more concrete, uh, a lot more clay, because um, it makes sense. Um, not just because it's a fad, and we, I think a lot of the times in the cellar, it's looking, you know, very, very clean and stainless steel. And it's, it's easy, but it's only pushing for one thing. It's pushing for quantity and not, res not respecting scale and limitations of pushing high quality. Yeah, words of wisdom or advice uh, in joining the wine industry, what, what would you tell them? Well, I just think it's wide open. Um, and I would say there's the, 
there's a, a, a beautiful opportunity to learn and listen, but listen to yourself. Listen to what you enjoy, what, your, uh, what you would like your future to hold, um, not just what else is going around you and joining that picture. Because um, if you're ready to join that picture, it's probably already three trains ahead of you. So start your own picture, start your own project, your own vision, plant the grapes that you believe in. When you plant a vineyard, you're thinking about the harvest and, and the wines in 10 years. Um, and then hopefully, you know, the next generation. Um, don't think about just what was working really well last year because you've already missed that train. Um, and I think people joining the Oregon wine industry, and this has been a question that came up before, it's still wonderfully collaborative. Help out your neighbors and they're gonna help you out. Ask good questions and I, I mean, and try to um, have fun and bring a lot of positivity to your project so you can, so you can continue with it because um, it's hard work and you don't, wanna, you don't wanna burn out. And the best way to not burn out is to enjoy what you're doing. Mm -hmm. All right, last, last question for you. We're gonna get, get, get to your philosophical side. What is to you the, the role of wine in a society? Oh, that pops up right away in my head. Um, you have, there's two answers for this in, in my eyes. Um, and I've mentioned them both through this conversation. Um, one is uh, a living time capsule. It's one of the few, um, we'll call it a, a, a food, a, 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 as much as a, it's a food product, as much as a piece of art that is living, it's breathing through the cork, it's changing, but if made well, you can go back into history. So every vintage that you, you capture up in one of these bottles, um, and if appreciated and if held onto, you can revisit times. Like um, this interview is happening 2021. Weird. Are we on the other side of COVID? I don't know, but it's been a crazy ride. These rides from 2020 are gonna show all of that. They're gonna show all that pent-up energy they're going to show a very very difficult year and as hard as it is to revisit that year when we jump back and open up those bottles it's going to be a story worth telling especially to other people who didn't even experience it maybe some of us have kids later on in the future and didn't experience it and this has happened other times i've, I've tried wine i'm revisiting world war ii or I'm revisiting some sort of change in language in, uh, in a country. And, you know, it's sometimes you taste it in the bottle, but sometimes it opens up conversation at a table. And that's the second answer that popped up right into my head in that there's not one winemaker who's, unless they, you know, are just beer drinkers, but there's not one who, who, who isn't going to answer this. It's sharing. Um, it's... The size of it, the size of this, this isn't to drink by yourself. 
Um, it's to open up and it's to share and it's to um, to open up a table with uh, with food and I mean if you really like wine maybe open up a couple of bottles but it's to be able to to, to share a story to share a time with your friends with your family with people you've never met um, it's something, you know, if you're here from the Willamette Valley or, you know, I'm, you know since I'm from here in Oregon, now I take a bottle and I go and I travel to Italy and I bring it there for people to try. I get to share my region, I get to share something new with someone and that aspect of sharing is really a huge, huge point of, of wine. It's, um, it's just as exciting to share the bottles as it is to make the wine or grow the grapes. Well, I know I said that was my last question, but your answer prompted one more. So I want to talk about 2020 briefly, if we can, um, and, 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 and kind of the, 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 twin, the twin calamities of 2020. So you mentioned COVID, first of all. Tell me about the effect it had on, on your work uh, and uh, the effect you, if you saw the effect on, it had on the industry. Absolutely. Um, so we had it um, easier here in here in Oregon um, than other places in the world. Um, that being said, I'm very I'm very grateful. Um, we had the chance to get to the winery when we wanted to. Um, in other countries, there's curfews, there's restrictions, there's limits. You have to find new techniques and how to create the wine because you can't be there all day long because of these curfews. Um, so it had, a, it had a lot of effect, but um, there's the ones that are very, very tangible. Um, labor was uh, much different. Um, being the sharing aspect, the tasting aspect, um, going around a winery with a mask on and um, the winemaking process is so important to have all your senses. You got to be, you got to be watching uh, ferment. You got to be feeling. You got to be, you know, hearing stuff during malolactic, and you always have to be smelling. So some of those were taken away from us at different times, where it was a little bit harder to access. I mean, of course, you're taking, you know, you're taking off your mask, or you're doing things, but it's. Uh, that happened at a very high moment of the pandemic. Um, there was that aspect of it. But then there was also aspects in the vineyard that were very difficult is how do we be safe? And um, how can we harvest these things where a lot of times these are um, big groups of people, if it's gonna be friends or if you're gonna bring in uh, different workers um, who are traveling, um, however you're gonna harvest your grapes, it's gonna be a, a lot of people. You're not one person harvesting and how do you, have distance and how do you do this so all these things were a learning process um, I think you asked me how it's going to affect the wines um, it's really hard to say um, you know there's early release wines um, that I've created or that I've tried of uh, colleagues um, or I've tried you know a lot of things out of barrel um, that are pent up it has the same personality of how we were um, during 2020, which is going to be, but then a lot of the ones they have, you know, they're still, they're still aging. A lot of the ones that I make are, you know, aging for a long time before I bottle them. So, time will tell um, how those wines will come, yeah, come of age. Mm -hmm. yeah, another part of 2020, obviously, you mentioned that it was, it was, 
looking like a beautiful vintage, uh, and, and then we had we had our smoke. So, tell me about the effect for on your work with that, all all the different vineyards you're managing, and, and how you kind of dealt with that oh, harvest yeah. last year. Well, that was difficult. And the first one that comes to my mind is not so much about smoke taint, but it was about human health, and um, it was a diff difficult one to navigate because. Like I had mentioned before, you have one chance per year at this. Um, and the difference between picking it one day or a week later, it's huge. It's a whole different wine. Um, and same thing in the cellar. And so making decisions of, are we going to go out there or not? And especially if you are making the call for other people and having the protective gear and having all the protective gear sold out. So it was one that we really had to open up the conversation to the people who were working and figuring out what people felt comfortable with. Um, that's the first one that pops in my head. Then there's the aspect um, that everybody's talking about. Smoke tank. How is it going to you know, affect the wines? When is it going to come? What is it going to taste like? Um, I think there's a lot of people who had different, ask, different approaches to it. Here, we were very lucky. Um, I think in higher elevation vineyards, we were affected much less because the smoke settled at the bottom of the valley. Um, and then also, it just didn't come here till the very, very end. Um, we were very, very lucky. We had you know, the fire up in Washington coming down. We had the fire in Oregon coming up. We we're just right on the border and we we're just looking, oh, no, no, no. Um, so we were, we were really lucky. I'm very grateful for that. There's other areas that it was, it was very difficult for, for them to, um, well, to even decide to pick uh, the grapes. Uh, my take on it was I would not miss a vintage and I would also uh, never want to be dishonest about the wines or what was going on. So I didn't treat the wines, didn't do anything, and knew that I wanted to capture exactly what was going on and put it in a bottle and to revisit it. Like I said, if you taste 2020 and it doesn't have a little hint of some mesquite or something, well, then you got to ask yourself what's in there. Because People who are living in Oregon or California or Washington, you know that it was smoky and it was hard even to work in the cellars. Uh, we were all in these you know, respirators and masks trying to get through this harvest. So you got to ask yourself about that, about the transparency of what's going on. Is it easy to strip the wine of all smokiness and all flavor? Character and vintage effect? Yeah, I can do it. And I know how, and I think most people with a science background know how to do it. Um, but I think that's the point of wine is, and my, you, what's the point of wine? What's, you know, why? Um, it's because it's, it's a time capsule to share something. And am I going to open up a bottle and if it has a little bit of smoky taint, am I going to be kind of uh, let down? At the table, yes, I am. But was I also let down 2020 going through this whole pandemic? Yes, I was. It holds the good and the bad of each year. And um, that's, what's, that's what's beautiful about wine, about the, about the product is, is the honesty of it. Well, that is a pretty fantastic way to end this. Uh, is there, uh, I have no other questions for you. Is there anything I should have asked that I didn't? Anything we didn't cover here today that we should have covered? No, I don't think so. I mean, do you have any questions? Because you guys are, you ladies are all involved.
Anything that comes up? Right, these are questions. Okay. Well, thank you so much for your time, for your hospitality, for your great answers and candor and tour also. And we'll go ahead and let you off the hook. Okay. Thank you very much. Thank you for joining us for this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. And thank you to all our supporters, partners, donors, and interviewees who have helped make our project a success. Be sure to check out our website at OregonWineHistoryArchive.org for more interviews, photographs, wine labels, and more. And stay tuned for more interviews as we tell the story of Oregon wine. The Oregon Wine History Archive podcast is brought to you from the Oregon Wine History Archive at Linfield University. With a very special thank you to all the Linfield Archive students who have contributed to these oral history interviews over the years.